Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. And welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph and Remy Martin. Coming up, we'll be speaking with The Dragons coach, Bernard Jackman, the EPCR chairman, Simon Halliday, and Nigel Owens returns to the podcast too. The first time joined this week by the two-time world champion and Olympic Games gold medal winning coach, Ben Ryan. It sounds good, doesn't it, Ben? <laughs> it does, yeah. It sounds a long time ago as well. <laughs> yes. What are you up to at the moment? A number of things, really, like in and out of rugby. I'm work, I work for the French Federation, which is good fun. And they good luck. Yeah, just well, they got me. I'm I'm in three mornings a week now at the embassy learning French. It's, it's I enjoy it. It's good. And then I'm building up my consultancy, so a ton of different things. In How have you found it when they get to that level? Because I've always had a theory that relatively sane coaches at club level, like Philippe Saint Andre and Bernard Laporte, when they get to national level, they seem to go completely haywire. <laughs> It's different. Every union's different, right? You know, and I, I'm enjoying I'm enjoying spending time with them in Paris and Mocassi and spent, and going to the top fourteen clubs. And um, they got this golden generation that won the under twenties World Cup, that won the Youth Olympics, that are playing this week in the Youth Olympics again. And they've got twenty twenty three World Cup and twenty twenty four Paris Olympics. So it's kind of I mean, it's aligned pretty well for them in the next few years, and it's theirs really to stuff up. Which anybody is capable of doing, and but, certainly but, the French, yes. But um, it, it's look, it's pointing in the right direction, and their women's game is also accelerating really quickly. So now I'm having fun. It's, it's, Are they going to keep on with this aberrant behaviour at halfback, where they seem to pick nines at ten and tens at nine, and think they're interchangeable, no problem? Yeah, I think they will do, and and they'll also have them as backup goal kickers as well. I mean, some of it I like the fact that that they can, you know, they, they coach these players to be multifaceted. Um, and the change in direction now that Bernard Laporte's made so that there's more French qualified in every every team is going to have a positive effect on on French rugby over the next few years. So, look, I mean, they've got they've got the players, and it's just all about getting them alignment now. Well, let's start with the Premiership. Two games just over the road, one at Twickenham and one at the Stoop. Unfortunately, marred by terrible weather, and I often think when players are struggling, and they did struggle, and you can't blame them for that, that wouldn't it be nice if we were aligned with the Southern Hemisphere and we played in the summer <laughs> and they could play on flat tracks and they could play with the sun on the back? Because when it gets so bad, you can't blame the halfbacks for basically kicking the leather off the ball and it becomes a question on the back three 
of just who can clear their lines and not you know, spill ball more than their opponent, which is not great if you're watching, not great if you're playing. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember as a coach, you can kind of look at it with a glass half full and say that when the the conditions are terrible, that the team with the, the greatest skill set is going to dominate. But then the pragmatism comes in and the risk reward and people start playing territory and start putting the ball in the air and, and defending and defending is is easier to do in that weather than attacking sometimes. So, yeah, I know, I know what you mean. I, I mean, I would love to be playing dry dry games every every day, but it was, it, unfortunately, it reduced the spectacle, didn't it? It certainly did. I mean, in East Midlands, derbies are usually full of vigour, if that's the right euphemism. But this one was strangely tame. And apart from two good tries, which were scored, I thought the standard was not that good. And the Saints at the moment, they're struggling to come to terms with a relatively new setup. How long do you think it might take them? It's a good question, isn't it? Because Chris Boyd, obviously, you know, he, he has a way that he wants to play and it is a, is a like a, a full court game. He does want to to attack and it is going to take a little bit of time. Sometimes some coaches, it really depends on their approach. Uh, you see it more in football. They can have an instant effect and then they can also decrease pretty quickly. And we've got Jordan now as well with Tigers. So you've got two new heads of um, programmes and it does take time for them to find their feet and neither team look like they're they're clicking at the moment. But they've got the personnel, they've got coaches, uh, and the boys respect Jordan certainly at Tigers as well. So let's just put that one down, perhaps the lack of skill set to the to the conditions this time and see how they get on in the next few weeks. Well, the later game, Stoop, it meant that Eddie Jones didn't have to travel too far to watch uh, four sets of players. Uh, in particular, he would have been keen for the players who are returning from injury. And Quinn's seem to reserve their best defensive performances for playing Saracens at home. Uh, not necessarily away, but they came very close again. The line speed was good. The march and try was just from you know, basic effort, wasn't it? Yeah. Doing the right thing, chasing hard. But in the end, Saris just that bit more quality. Yeah, I'd say so. And I think I can really see Quinn's playing well at the moment. And Joe Marchant, for me, is knocking on the door of national honours if he carries on playing like that, full of energy and enthusiasm, uh, works hard both sides of the ball. And I thought Quinn's, like you said, defended really well. They know what's coming because Guzzi knows Saracens really well and he he knows how to try to stop the juggernaut that Saracens can can throw at you. But then Billy, Billy Vanapola coming back, he's not at his best yet, but again adds another dimension to them as well. And them and Exeter are just too good for everyone else at the moment. Well, that is indeed the case, and it might be that the table separates quite early and the two teams at the top, Saracens and Exeter, you know, look to be out in front and will be for quite a long time. But the relegation battle could be quite interesting, couldn't it? Because Worcester thrashing uh, Bristol, Newcastle, strangely after last year's efforts, bottom of the table. What do you think has not clicked there this time at for for Falcons, they've had a lot of Friday night games actually that that, that I've seen um, live on TV and shown some great glimpses of of what they were about last year. They kind of Gonover was out at the start of the season, and he, you know he's he's huge for them, and he'd be starting and starring in every team in the Premiership. Um, and Sale found a bit of form uh, at the weekend because they really weren't playing well at all and just looked completely disjointed and would be. Previous to that, to this weekend, I would have had them as as favourites to go down at the moment because Bristol have got a bit of energy about them, but they were completely undone at the weekend by by Worcester. I like P- 
Pat's, you know, he's setting his goals high. He's talking still after the games about, you know, they still want a Champions Cup place next year. He's not mentioning relegation. And at Ashton Gate, where they're, you know, they're, they're filling the stadiums, they're going to pick up wins. So, yeah, I think Sale, for me, are still going to be struggling there. And Newcastle will find their form. They've got some good players. They, they, they just need to, to get a good home win under their belt and then they can move on from there. What do you make of Bath? Because I've always thought that Todd Blackett, of being from where he is, will on many occasions be absolutely furious at the lack of consistency there. Because, again, you know, he said, well, we continue hurting ourselves a bit. That's the most frustrating thing. But I can't fault the attitude or the effort. Now, it's either that or sometimes you can fault the attitude or the effort. But whichever way, they contribute to a club which has spent a lot of money, has a huge tradition but have just not been able to find anything like the consistency which is required to properly challenge you know, for a title. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, and I look at them and I look at the New York Knicks because you know, they're, they're another team that have had everything, all the stars, all the money, and they haven't quite, they haven't quite fired and there's no reason why they shouldn't be. And Bath are, f- are full of top-quality players and coaches um, they're perhaps shy of a coach, I'd say. They might be. If you look at all the premiership lineups, they're probably short of one full-time coach um, around their attack. Uh, but ultimately, um, they are they do underperform in, 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 at key moments. Um, and I'm glad that they, they kind of they backed Todd recently and said, you know, they're extending his contract and he's the man to lead them forward. And from what I gather, you know, they ha- he has a huge amount of respect from the players and they... they th- they feel they're getting high quality coaching and in a positive environment. The Premiership's getting really competitive now, and, and Bath haven't lost games by large margins. And momentum is everything. And if they start to win a few games, then you could quickly see them moving through. A bit like Arsenal in the Premiership, lose the first couple of games, and then they get some momentum. Well, I know some people who stand in the shed at Gloucester who thought this year it might be the year that they actually threw away the similar hoodoo of inconsistency and I also know other people probably a bit better qualified who thought that whilst Gloucester might have an improved season was still not quite the the deal that everyone was making out I think the Cipriani factor was a huge one for them and it gave everyone a lot of hope but it to me just shows the problems are still there and it's a perennial thing what what can you what is the what is the secret to consistency if there is one it's it's making sure that everybody understands that it's not that there's a process. So it's not just about if if a team lose a game because they've dropped a pass or a referee's got involved or it's a missed tackle, that they don't look at that isolated incident and you can look back and say that there's there's something that's come from there's a lack of consistency earlier on in the week, in the month, in preparation. And when you get constant when you, when you just get a rounded outlook on things and things are done well all the time, then you're less likely to have those hiccups. And I think sometimes there's too many knee-jerk reactions around selection. Injuries do play their part. But it's those teams, that, again, at the top of the league, Exeter and Saracens, that when you see that what they do during the week, it's smooth, it's organised, it doesn't seem to change too much, and everybody's aligned. And when you get alignment in professional sport, that is the, that is the golden word. You know, it can create... Or the opportunity then to to play consistently well and sometimes above what what you can that that synergistic quality can come into things. Well, I'm glad you explained that because a word that is used by many Saracens players is system, and 
for a lot of people, they think that's prescriptive rugby. It means they're automaton yeah. and they're told you've got to do this at this time, that at that time. But as you explained, it goes much wider. And they always say, you know, when we are in trouble, we have faith in the system. Yeah. So presumably what you're saying is that it isn't a prescriptive thing. You do with the things that you need to do, but it's a more consistent approach to the whole game, the whole preparation. Totally. They have like, they, what I would call it, they've got guardrails. So they've got, you know, they've got a framework that everybody understands. That doesn't mean, you know, you have to do this in this certain situation. It's just a, a set of rules of principles. Within, inside those guardrails, they're allowed to have player-led decisions. They can do their thing. They can get the best out of about the individuals. But they know that, that outside the guardrails, that, that that's the black and white. Saracens and Exeter do that better than everybody else. And, and that's that's a fine balance. You know, they are not... You know, thicker playbooks, thicker players. That's not their. That's not them at the top of the league. Some of the other teams down the middle and the end, they're a little bit more cons- conscriptive like that. And that, and when you get that, when you don't feel like you've got any autonomy as a player, that's where you're going to start to crack, and that's where you're going to see the inconsistent results. Well, the thing that went through my head when I was watching the shots of Eddie Jones watching the games was he undoubtedly will have seen the Springboks and the All Blacks and seen the pace and the power that was in that game, irrespective of who won. And he must have been thinking, I've got to get players to this level, and I'm watching two games, presumably the one at Twickenham and the one at Stoop, in which players are not playing at pace because the conditions are so bad that they are not being able to showcase their skills. And that, to a certain extent, is difficult for him, isn't it? Because how do you assess... Who might be able to make the step up? Who's playing well enough to watch and match a game which you've seen under totally different conditions at international level? Yeah, and I, can, I understand that. I mean, but my, I think my, my view is that we have the players that are good enough to win a World Cup and we will have the knowledge and the money to create a player that's going to be conditioned correctly for a World Cup. So then you think, well, what are the two, two things then that are going to... Decide our fate. It's going to be around creating a culture that is getting the best out of our players and having the appropriate tactics. And when you watch New Zealand play, that speed accuracy trade off is all there with with New Zealand because they're getting their line, they know what they're doing, so they can do it at a quick pace. When you're not quite sure, when you're not 100% on what you're trying to do within those guardrails, your speed drops, your accuracy probably drops as well, and you get that inconsistent play and you don't get in that momentum. So that's what Eddie's got to do. You know, stop messing around with what's going on at 10, 12, 13. Sort that out, get some momentum, pick a consistent team and then have the tactics that everybody understands and then they can start to really ramp up the pace of the game. Well, I'm interested that you said that because for me, whatever you do on a field, familiarity is a big help because obviously you get to a stage, if you do it right, where it's almost instinctive because you know where the other people within your units will be, you know what they will do under certain circumstances. And if we get to the World Cup with the same faults or the same problems at back row balance, centre partnership with the fly half and the back three, then anything they do is necessarily going to be less effective. And we're now getting to the very last knockings. I know there's 11 months to go, but there aren't that many games really. No, they're not. You're absolutely right. And, and you know, and, and it comes, it's twofold again. It, it's the tactics. So don't mess around with those as far as what you're deciding, the way you're going to do. And obviously you've got to uh, adapt a little bit to the opposition, but ultimately the way you play in a, both sides of the ball. 
and then get those combinations right. You know, you do need to strike up partnerships. And, you know, you, you think of your Farjones and Liners and those type of partnerships that just have that ability then to to, to play at a deeper level because they, they understand what each other's roles are and, and, and they play well off each other. We haven't got that yet. Um, and you're right, like the, the runway is, is quickly quickly running out because although, like you say, 11 months, there's not that many games. Um, so he's, you know, he's going to have to hope we get a bit of luck and don't get any injuries and that we can start to play those the, the right combinations and he's got to find them quickly and stick with them. And maybe November will give him that opportunity. You know, if you look at, you know, apart from the All Black test, South Africa, it's going to be a hard test, but they're going to be, it's outside the international window, so they're going to be losing a couple of players, which is ridiculous that that's even happening. But I, I think, um, you know, this is his real, November's a huge month for Eddie. Time now to switch our attention to the Guinness Pro 14, and I'm really pleased to say we can speak to a regular contributor to the podcast. It's Bernard Jackman, the Dragons head coach. Hello, Bernard. Hi, Brian. Not the start to the season I think you would have wanted. Was there any difference between what you thought the job was and what it turned out to be when you actually got at ground level? Yeah, listen, I knew it was going to be a difficult task, and in fairness, the, the people who recruited me um, told me that, you know, told me it was a real rebuild. And we got, got in there, and I think to be the biggest thing that shocked me and disappointed me was probably the lack of ambition and, and probably um, desire that some, some players had and we had to, we had to deal with that so we, you know, we obviously made a lot of changes we, we let 21 players go over the summer but um, we spent most of last season trying to develop as many young players as we can and we, you know, we, give, um, we give 19 players their debut um, 11 of those were teenagers um, which is difficult in, in, uh, you know, in rugby union uh, especially for, for front five and, and back, back row forwards but we we saw some some talent there that we thought had big potential, and we we blooded them, and, and obviously that was difficult. So many young players playing together at the same time, but you know the idea was to try and fast track their development because you know our budget is limited compared to the other Welsh regions, and we need to develop talent from within. And some of those players are coming through now, and and you know, will be big big players for the Dragons in the future, and hopefully for Wales. And you know we brought in 14 recruits as well to try and give us a little bit more experience, and they're settling in. So even though we you know we only have two wins for the first six games. You know, we've been away to Leinster, we've been away to Glasgow, which are probably two of the harder games. And I do, I do feel that we're on the right track where certain elements of performances are um, are getting better. So it's better, better to be patient. How far along with the process do you think you are? It's, I, think, I think, to be honest, I think we'll see real benefit, you know, over the next couple of months in terms of uh, the new players you brought in, chatting uh, with some of those, you know, local guys. I do think we need another re- recruitment cycle. Not as many recruits, obviously, uh, but I think we'll bring four or five you know, top players to come in and just uh, give us a little bit more depth at the moment. We've got, you know, we only have seven injuries, but there's seven injuries to starters. And we probably don't have the depth that, you know, other teams do. And in, in, with the, you know, the game is so attritional at the moment. Your, your second choice 15 is just as important as your first choice 15. And, and that's an area that we'll be looking to, to add to the squad and, you know, make sure that as coaches, we're, we're giving them the right information and the right environment to, uh, to place their potential. Well, I've got a much better group. I mean, I've got a group of men now who are, we're passionate about the the region and are you know are keen to get better, and that's a that's a really good starting point. So if I didn't have that, I you know I'd be obviously frustrated. But you know it's, it's our it's our job as coaches to see what happens Monday to Friday and and, and knowing that if you're a process the right to transfer to the pitch. Hey Bernard, it's Ben Ryan here. How are you doing? Yeah, very good, Ben. Good. Thank. Last time we talked, we were trying to track down errant Fijians coming back from <laughs> pre-season. <laughs> <laughs> you're very good to help me there. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. Uh, that guy is still a little bit errant. He's, he's in France, but um, he, yeah. hasn't really, uh, he hasn't really settled down. But anyway, 
Yeah, no, I'm just I'm just interested now that you're coming to Europe now. What what you would do changes wise off the field in preparation in your preparation week? Do, do you really? Yeah, we're like... actually going to go. Uh, yeah, it's a good question. Last year we, you know, we uh, we rotated the last because we were, we were we had so many injuries last year. We had 26 injuries for for about three months. Where you know we we get a couple of guys back and we lose a few more. So effectively last year there was a period where you know the physio was picking the team. It was literally whoever was fit. But we did. We did use the Challenge Cup, particularly when I was in France in Grenoble, as a way of of uh, having a look at some of the some of the younger players and uh, development players. But I just think with this group, you know, it's so important that we just get some continuity, get some get some wins. That we just got to keep keep a, a pretty settled team. Now, you know, some of the guys who've been benching will obviously get an opportunity. But uh, we're going to Romania this weekend to. Um, uh, Timur Sarsons uh, and we're going to go you know as strong as possible with a view to, to try and get you know a win round one try and get hopefully a bonus point and, and then have a home game against Northampton the week after I think for us you know getting wins on the board will have a massive impact in terms of you know improving the players self-belief and confidence but Unlike the uh, French leagues and the English leagues no relegation in the uh, Guinness Pro 14 what effect does that have on your job? Last year was it was actually very useful because you know once we decided that we weren't going to keep players, then we just had, we were able to actually give people opportunities without the you know the pressure of results, which is in the top fourteen and the Aviva Premiership. But I think that's only uh, something that you can probably do once in a cycle, um, or as a head coach, you only ever want to go through once because we all want to be competitive and we all want to win. But I do, I do think that it does give you the opportunity sometimes to take a gamble on, on a player um, who shows you something but might not have the experience but the standard of the, of the league is, is, is still very high I mean and you know some of the, some of the teams particularly the Irish teams have such strength and depth that you know they can they can actually rest people like Johnny Sexton or, or, or James Ryan or, or, or Keane Healy and have another international to come in behind them so that's a challenge for us we don't have in Wales you know I think all the four regions don't have that level of depth the Irish provinces have been able to do that over the last five or six years in terms of minding their international players, but giving experience to, to younger players with potential. And in fairness to them, they've been able to win as well and, and always qualify, you know, finish top four, which means they can bring back their internationals for the, for the knockout stages. So I suppose the opportunity for us and the, and the challenge is to, is to try and develop that depth so we can compete with, with, with those types of teams. Well, the perennial favourites, Leinster, Munster, Glasgow, are... There or thereabouts, but uh, two of your direct competitors in Wales, the Ospreys and the Cardiff Blues, look this season to be a little better. What are they doing better? Yeah, I think this, the Blues have obviously. Um, I think Danny Wilson did a great job at the Blues last year, and you know they finished the season in really good form, and obviously won that Challenge Cup final against Gloucester, which I think gave them huge momentum. And then they've added to their squad. You know they brought Rory Thornton in from the Ospreys. They brought uh, Dimitri Arhib in. I was supposed to go to Montpellier, but had, a, had an issue with medical. But he's a very, very good tight end prop. Uh, Sam Manoa signed over the summer, but he hasn't played yet. And they just got a really good, good vibe about them at the moment. And even, you know, they, they lost. They've only won three games out of six, but they've, you know, they've lost. I think three games they lost by a total of five points. So the Blues are in a are in a really good place. I think uh, a lot of confidence. And the Ospreys um, over the summer, you know, they recruited people like Scott Williams and George North. Already had a you know, a strong frontline team and, and added Sean Edwards to their coaching staff. So, you know, you can see how they're defending now. They're defending much better than they were last year. They've got likes of Alan Jones, Brad Davies, Tiprick, Dan Lydia, you know, Ala Davies, they signed from the Scarlet as well. So, you know, they have very good players and a lot of them are available for selection at the moment. So it's good to see Welsh 
you know, three Welsh regions up up um, challenging the, the, the Scottish and the Irish at the moment. And, you know, our job is to try and make sure there's four. Well, Bernard, we've got to leave it there, but thanks uh, very much. Good luck for the rest of the season. I know it's a hard battle, but I know you're the sort of person who fights battles. <laughs> thanks, Brian. Thank you, Brian. Bye-bye. You. That's Bernard Jackman, the Dragons head coach. Now, let's turn our attention to rugby, and specifically the administration of rugby, because seamless transition from player to committee man. If ever there was a natural, it's our next guest. It's Simon Halliday, the EPCR Chairman, who's just been re-elected. Is that right, Simon? Moro, morning, afternoon. Uh, yes, I have taken on the role for another three years. If they're as interesting as the first three, uh, yeah, <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be a fun time. You didn't use Cambridge Analytica in your, um, <laughs> in your bid for glory, did you? Uh, no, there wasn't what I call a proactive campaign. But um, anyway, it's come my way again, and I've, I've said yes. And Look, I mean, the tournament has gone from strength to strength you look back and we're now on free to air millions of people will be able to uh, to watch it for the first time ever what changes if any are coming up well as, as I said the, the biggest one is um, the fact that the final will be on uh, live terrestrial TV in UK and Ireland um, and I think one of the biggest questions for us and that's been put is you know people can't watch the rugby it's great rugby but you have to go on pay-per-view so we've kind of reversed a bit of the current trend and now it's it's freely available and I think the other big changes are probably going to be driven by other developments in world rugby. So, but for the minute, you know, the, the tournament's in good shape and um, another set of strong pools, as you can see. How is the sponsorship aspect going? Because I know there was a decision made to try and emulate the Champions League, taking away the title sponsor and yeah. having generic <laughs> sponsors. Um, it, the current climate is very difficult for sponsorship anyway. Uh, has there been any progress there? Well... You'll have noticed that, you know, it's now it went from Heineken Cup to Champions Cup and now Heineken Champions Cup. So, yeah. you know, we've got a title sponsor back and Heineken are really delighted to be there. And I think for us, it's a great development. Obviously, we, as you said, tried to work with Heineken as a, um, a major brand alongside potential other partners. And that's not really played out. You've referenced a difficult market. That's no secret to anybody, just uh, ask the Six Nations. But... Um, I think what this has thrown up is other interesting opportunities at the national or the regional level. You know, you can't ignore Brexit. It's been a, an issue for companies working out how they want to spend their money. So we've been hit with all of that. But 90% of our revenue is broadcast revenue and the type of sponsor. So, you know, you're, you're playing with the rest. And it's important to get more people in. But um, at the minute, as I say, you know, the strength of turn plus free to air should make that a much easier conversation. Hi, Simon. Ben Ryan here. Hope you're well. Hi, Ben. So just looking ahead at perhaps some of the stuff that's going on at World Rugby to look at global, the global season and getting your crystal ball out, do you think we're ever going to get to a point where we might have a European Super League and possibly the, the, some of the guys, the teams from South Africa coming down to also be part of that? Well, I think the, the important thing for everyone to know is that, remember, we're made up of the league together with the unions. So their decisions will drive what we may become at any point. And if it's structural, then it needs to be um, unanimous. The current structure goes through till 2022. But obviously, we need to talk about what happens next well before that. So it'll be up to each league to approach EPCR. And it's, as I say, it's them who's around the table. It's their competition. 
to say, look, here's how we think we can improve things. Here's how it either needs to change or could change. And then what does it look like to not just the rugby playing public, but what does it look like to the elite players who've got to manage their season? Because mm. we all know that you can't ask your, the top players to, to to be playing too much. And the context, therefore, has to be a global context. The international calendar, the domestic leagues, which you know all of our leagues obviously are managing, and then, and then uh, Europe. So it's tricky, but it will come down to you know proper conversation around the table between all the stakeholders. Simon, when I speak to Brett Gosper, as I do uh, every year in depth, he highlights certain areas like Asia, like Germany, funnily enough, in Europe, where they have big hopes for growing rugby, not just because of the playing numbers, but because of the economic strengths. I've for a long time advocated that there should be automatic, however you frame this, entry onto the top table competitions of the Rugby Championship and the Six Nations. That, to me, would help Tier 2 nations become self-sufficient. You can only do so much at a club level, but have you got an eye on that sort of process? I, I wish I could be more encouraging because, you know, we've had a situation where, obviously, our third tournament does contain entities like German clubs, you know, Spanish, Russian, Polish, Georgian, etc. But there simply isn't enough communication between World Rugby, Rugby Europe and ourselves. And, you know, we've done a huge amount, some would say beyond the call of duty, to grow that piece of the business. But we've had little help. And I think you want to ask back to Brett Gosper, you know, you need to get your hands dirty with these situations because they won't grow unless you actually help them. And I'm afraid to say that, you know, we've done our bit and we're struggling to do it on our own. So there needs to be, as Ben will appreciate, and you would certainly appreciate, everyone who is involved in rugby at all levels, in these situations, has to get around the table and work out how they're going to do it. And that hasn't happened. Do you think the will is there? Uh, I'd like to see more action rather than the words. That's fair enough. <laughs> uh, you might be waiting a while, I think, Simon. Uh, <laughs> well, there are ways to communicate. Um, over the next two months, there are a couple of meetings as a result, which would be very surprised if there isn't action. Good. Simon, we've got to leave it there, but thanks very much for okay. updating us on what is going thanks on at it. European level. Interesting there, Ben, talking about the communication aspect. I know that World Rugby have all sorts of issues that they need to prioritise, but in the end, if you are going to grow rugby globally and you don't want just to dole money out to Tier 2 nations, both at club level and at international level, they have to have the automatic right to win places in the big competitions totally and i I, th I think we will probably get closer to some sort of world ranking league structure where perhaps you know world rugby can have a stronger view on you know, the top 10 top 15 teams and they they have to play each other once a year at, at, and, and that then changes the concepts of six nations and rugby championships and and before they start worrying about increasing the game in China, maybe they should spend more time in the South Pacific and help Samoa and Tonga and Fiji that have already spent 100 years trying to improve their game and just need funding and resources and opportunity um, before they start trying to expand the empire into Germany and China and, and elsewhere. So I, I can see some change. And I know that Gus um, is, is very keen on having this global season and driving it. And when he gets his teeth into something, he, he, he works tirelessly to try to 
create some action. So I think Simon's right. I think there will be some some stuff coming out in the next couple of months that will be incredibly significant. One of the things I've always thought would help enormously, and it's a concept you'll be very fully familiar with in the sevens uh, circuit, is the idea of a World Cup plate. Mm. Not open to tier one nations who don't get out of their group because that would also solve the problem from Saturday to Saturday when you get into knockout stages where there's nothing going on. Yeah, It would cost relatively little, and I have been told by probably one of the biggest sponsorship experts in the world, who just happens to be a friend of mine I went to school with, that it would easily be covered by extra revenue that you could get from sponsors. But that would give a tangible return for a Tier 2 nation at every World Cup. Yep, and then if there was a league system in place and world rankings, then it might also kick in for some promotional relegation stuff so they could create something that would still be at stake. And 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 like I know from Fiji, like the one time they get decent amount of opportunity to spend time with the players is pre World Cups, and then they play their pool games. And if they don't get through, that's that. When they've they're they're actually, if you watch the South Pacific teams and those tier twos, they're getting better each game. They are, and when, for example, Japan perform as heroically as they did in the 2015 World Cup. For them to have to simply go home mm. without the possibility of anything else seems to me to be just a crying uh, lack, waste of an opportunity. Yeah, totally. I, I think that I think, like you say, there is an opportunity post post those group games to to have spots in the calendar for exactly the reasons you said. So, hopefully, that's something else that um, will be actioned over the coming seasons. Well, time now to switch to a sponsored section. We've got a new sponsor. It's Channel Five and Charlie Morgan. The Telegraph Rugby Reporter is here to tell us all about it. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Brian. Thanks now, for having me. What's this all about? So we picked out the... We're doing this month by month. So we picked out from the first five rounds of the Premiership, we picked out our favourite moments, if you like. So they're, I mean, in a kind of tri-fest of a month, they've tended to be attacking highlights. And uh, we've collated them together and we're going to put them on the website for our readers to pick their favourite. OK, and you can go and cast your vote for the highlight of the month by going to tgr.ph forward slash channel 5 rugby and that's all lowercase which which ones have you got this month so i'll give you i'll give you a quick rundown the first moment won't come as a surprise to anybody i don't think given the hype that surrounded it it's Danny Cipriani's pass uh, against Northampton on the first saturday of the season now we're very much aware that he had penalty advantage. We're very much aware that RC Tuala sort of creeps off a his wing. Pass. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, but exactly. Still a very special piece of play. Go straight into number two. Number two, I was at this game in the stands at Welford Road and it was really kind of heartwarming moments. Manny Tuilagi's try against Northampton, sorry, against uh, Newcastle Falcons. Really nice bit of interplay from, uh, from Carl Eastmond and, and George Ford just fading out the back, just manipulating the Newcastle defence enough to give uh, Manu that little little gap that he needed and he, and he was through Matavesi and he was through uh, Takalua and he charged 50 metres to the line and, yeah, like I say, extremely heartwarming and, and the whole of Welford Road was delighted. Number three. We have Joe Thokana-Singer's acrobatic finish against Quinns. He's, uh, again, having, having spoken to him subsequently, he admitted that he made it slightly more difficult than it probably was. He, uh, he juggled uh, Semesa Rocco-Laguni's offload his finish, the one-handed sort of with the rest of his body airborne, it kind of showed to me what these guys, these guys actually practice that. It's coming from the NRL and it's just, it was amazing to see a young guy doing that. 
Okay, number four. Number four, uh, the finale of Worcester's win at Welford Road. Leicester had come back into this game. Worcester had sprinted out of the blocks and, and kind of built up a 37-11 uh, advantage, I think it was. Uh, but for Worcester to kind of hold on and the try they scored at the end was through Ted Hill, who's his second of the game. That kind of um, heralded a, an emerging moment for Ted, who's going to be who's going to be a fantastic player, really rated by the guys at the RFU already. Uh, but it also showed, I think, just how much of a dogfight that that maybe maybe even third to twelfth in the Premiership is going to be. I agree with that. And to complete the set, we have a defensive highlight to complete the set, and it's it's uh, Ben Morris's last gasp tackle for Wasps against Newcastle. Um, Newcastle were leading twenty three twelve at this point. That uh, Ben Morris got back to make a make a fantastic tackle on Tom Penny. Brilliant piece of play in itself, and there's a nice little subplot that Ben was actually a member of Newcastle's academy, so that might have felt extra special for him. So there you are. Remember, to vote, go to tgr.ph forward slash channel 5 rugby, all lowercase. And don't forget, you can catch the Gallagher Premiership Rugby Highlights show 7pm every Monday on Channel 5. Well, Ben, the World Cup countdown. It is now 11 months and 12 days till the start of the World Cup. Where are England in their cycle? Where should they be? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they are running out of... They're not running out of time as far as the ticking clock. They're running out of time on the field to get things right and get your combinations right and get the tactics right. And, uh, you know, obviously there was a bit of consternation when the, the training squad was named recently and left out some some pretty significant characters. And as I have said in the past, England won't win a World Cup with George Ford at number 10, and I, I still maintain that and... I would be taking Farrell, Cipriani and probably Marcus Smith to the World Cup as my three tens. To what extent are the difficulties that Eddie Jones has had in my line is all these things, his own fault or parts of bad luck with injuries and suspensions and so on? Yeah, I think there's an element of that, that, that with anything, you know, your best laid plans can, can fall apart a little bit with injury. But there's been too much tinkering. And I think, you know, there's been too much going on change, too many staff turnarounds in, in, the, in the management group, which isn't going to allow consistency and some too, too, too many changes. And tactically, I'm still not quite sure what they're about. And some of that's come down to a lack of having the right combinations. So he's now had this period of time between the South Africa tour and these November internationals where he's going to have probably re Reset, Easy for you to reset, say, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Calibrate. Recalibrated everything a little bit more and then a bit like, you know, sticking your pot in the kiln. He's got this pot in the kiln now that he can't now chuck an extra spout on or handle. He's got to stick by what he's going to do because changes now will have a significant impact on both selection and uh, and performance. So they have to get into some consistency in the November internationals. Quite apart from the three areas uh, on the field with regard to units that we've already identified, if your defensive coach takes a job which is a job which doesn't come around very often, I can understand that. Mm. But what I can't understand is the confusion about whether we have an attack coach, whether he's part-time, whether he's full-time, where he is, why he's not been there for the start, and so on. That, that seems to be to be a basic tenet of the management team, and I can't understand why a coach as experienced as Eddie Jones has not got that sorted. 
I can't either. I think one of the one of the reasons is the best coaches that he probably knows within his network aren't available, and he doesn't know British coaches. So, and the RFU aren't telling him. Here's here you go. Here's a short list. Go and go and have a look at these guys, um, which is a real shame because it sends out a pretty negative message to a lot of very good coaches that uh, could have been involved in this process. Is the talent there? Coach wise, yes, yeah, I think I think there is, and and you've only got to see the clubs are doing it. They're actually developing their coaches, and you've look at you look at Joe Shaw at Saracens coming through, Ali Hefer at Exeter, as well as you know majority of which are British coaches in those top two teams. They're creating coaches within the clubs, and there are a few have got a pathway that that doesn't seem connected to the senior side, and it's a shame that we've recruited. I mean, look, I've been an overseas coach in a in an overseas union. So I've got to be careful, you know, that I that I suddenly say something and and do something else. But we've got such a plethora of overseas coaches in that national setup, and you can't have you can't have a national coach living somewhere else and not not certainly like why wouldn't you sacrifice the next eleven twelve months of your time to this project? It's a pretty significant one, and uh, I think that you know that he still does have a chance now. But we can't have any more issues like this. We can't have any more people leaving. Can't have any more changes in in personnel. We need some consistency in every aspect. So there still is just about enough time. Just about. Just. <laughs> <laughs> well, very pleased to say we can welcome someone back. It's Nigel Owens. Hello, Nigel. Brian, how are you? Long time no speak. Yes, it seems a long time. You've had your feet it up did, over yeah. the summer, have you? Just swallowing about, sunbathing? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, we, for a change, we're lovely weather in Wales to do that, but... Uh, I was away, unfortunately. I was in, uh, well, not unfortunately. I was, I was in Japan for for three weeks, uh, refereeing out there in 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 June, which was a, which was a wonderful experience. Um, so yeah, it's been quite a quite a quite a quite a busy summer, but it was nice to get some t- time at home and just feet up. It was yes. Good. A couple of uh, topics that have come up from readers and listeners actually. Joseph Fallon, the conditions where if you're not held in a tackle, so you can place the ball, then pick it up and go again, like James Lowe for Leinster. What's the law around that? You tackle. You're obviously you're, you're tackled by an opponent. So you're held and you're, and, and, you're, and you're brought to ground. And then when you're brought to ground, what needed to happen then is the tackler must release you, and you must release the ball before you can get to your feet and then regather the ball. So that's the law. So you need to determine if a person was actually held and, and brought to ground, or was as he went to ground, if the tackler was not in contact with him and holding him was bringing him to ground and the tackle is not complete. So if the tackle is not complete, then the ball carrier is able to get back up on his feet with the ball. What he can't do is to continue to roll or crawl on his hand, on his knees and stuff on the floor and then get back up. He must make an attempt to get back up straight away. Now, if that means you sort of you fumble a little bit and then you get back up, that's deemed to be in the action of getting up. So what you need to decide is, was the tackle complete? And if the tackle is complete, then the ball carrier must release the ball, get to his feet, and then regather the ball. If the tackle is not complete, then he's quite entitled to get back up. Hey, Nigel, Ben Ryan here. Ben, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. I'm, my uh, w- One thing I want to talk about is the breakdown. And um, I guess if I look at the law book to start with, under law, if it says that uh, you are not deliberately allowed to collapse a, a ruck and you are not deliberately or willfully allowed to come off your feet, how is the judo roll and the croc roll being allowed to 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 
to pervade all all areas of the game? That's a, that's a, good, that's a good point and a good question. I think first of all, as long as you grab somebody and not around the neck now obviously because the neck roll is illegal and if you're grabbing somebody you're trying to move them from the contact area you would deem that to be clearing the guy out or moving him from the contest for you to win the contest over that ball or to move him off and win that ruck contest if you like so what interpretation is we'd be deeming them to be moving the player first the fact they go to ground afterwards then is an after effect of that. So imagine a guy coming in. Now, how referees would referee the contact era, you pretty much they will address it like, they use the words quite a lot, of like a plane landing and a plane taking off. So if you're coming in low, now bear in mind the way the jackals jackal for the ball these days, obviously they have to be supporting the body weight, but they come in and this is where you see the sort of the short, strong open sides are, are probably the best jacklers really because they come in very low, they're very strong, low centre of gravity and they're over the ball so strong. So the only, if you're going to come in the same height as them, you're not going to be able to move them. So what you see then, they try to grasp onto them and move them off the ball that way. Or they try to come in underneath them, so come in lower and then move them off. So you, if, imagine like a plane taking off, you, you come in low underneath the guy who's trying to jackal for the ball or was going to jackal for the ball and then you come in underneath him and then you make an upward action then to take them off of the contest and inevitably then in that contest you are probably going to land on the ground because of the way of, of, the, con- of the contest. So that is an illegal action. So the fact you've gone to ground afterwards is not deemed to be illegal because your initial contact was to clear legally first. Now, if you come flying in with no arms or leading with a shoulder or grab somebody around the, the neck, then that is dangerous play and, and it's an act of foul play. And then the other one that the referees would look at then is the plane landing, which means the guy is coming in over the ball to, to jackal and win a turnover. And you come in straight off your feet, like a plane landing, for example, straight off your feet over that ball to prevent that guy who is now legally going to try and win that turnover ball. Then that then is is off your feet because you come straight off your feet to prevent the contest. If you come in low to clear somebody out legally and then you go off your feet, that is not to deem to be illegal because your initial actions were clear. It's just the dynamics of the ruck has caused you to go off your feet. But one thing I would agree with you, the the better we can keep people on their feet in the ruck, the better it is for the game, the easier it is to, to referee, uh, and also as well, I, I think. And, um, you know, you can bring back rucking, and rucking is still part of the game within the laws of the game, just nobody does it anymore, really. But players on their feet and rucking, you know, it, it does, I think, help the dynamics of the game, and it certainly makes it easier to referee. No, I get that, Nigel, but my, my point, I guess, is that the actual technique of a crocodile roll, judo roll, whatever you want to call it, actually means that you have to use, you know, you're levering your weight to collapse, to take that player away. And so your action is you are deliberately coming off your feet and then and then there is a, a result of that at the end that you've fallen over. But you've it's not as though momentum's caused that. You've actually deliberately come in with your technique, which is meaning that you're going to have to use your body weight to come off your feet to collapse the ruck. So you're, you're actually breaking two laws there. Why is, why is that not um, well, being applied? I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't quite agree with you there because what, 
the way that it's been, it would be interpreted is that your initial action now is is to move the player by pulling him to ground or pushing him off the ruck. So your your initial action is 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 to move him. What happens next? The fact that you've landed on the ground then is a secondary thing, and it is deemed that your actions first of all. You were on your feet. You're trying to, and it, it doesn't say you must sort of. You can't pull him in any direction or clear him in any direction. As long as you went to that truck and you're on your feet and you move somebody off, then that is a contest. It would probably be the way for me to sort of sort of sum it up for you best. Probably then is, is the way that this is being interpreted. It is interpreted. It is if, if you look at the a line out when a ball carrier in the lineup comes down, you'll have two support players usually bound on him, bringing him into ground. So you've got three ball carrying sides players, sorry, from the same side, now in contact. And then when the first defender comes in and grabs that ball carrier, what he actually does technically in the laws of the game is he's actually forming a mall because you've got three ball carrying side and one defender have technically formed a mall. But because he takes that to the ground immediately, what we interpret then, we interpret that the defender was not binding on to him to form a mall. He was binding on to him to make a tackle to bring him to ground. So we don't penalise that as a mall collapse as long as it's done immediately. And this would be the same way that the contact area would be interpreted then is that we we deem it to be to clear the player out of the contact area first of all. The action is gone to ground then is 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 secondary. So very similar to that mall. If we think of the mall, technically when a guy binds onto the ball carrier when he comes down after he's come to ground from the line out, he's technically forming a mall. But we don't referee that as a collapse of the mall as long as he does it immediately because his intention is to actually bring it to ground to make a tackle rather than form a mall, although technically that's what he's done by grasping onto it. So it's a very similar interpretation that the referee would use then in the way that the, that the ruck is is refereed. Except that the, in, a, in a ruck often there's lots of bodies on the floor and you can get players trapped and get there and when they're, when they're rolled to the side laterally, there's nowhere for them to go, nowhere more importantly for their joints to go, rather than rather than um, cause injury. Why are the laws not being taken out then? If you if if you if we're allowing things like to deliberately collapse rucks and deliberately come off our feet, which is that technique? And I'm not for but one. I, mo- I think deliberate, deliberately coming off. I think I think first of all, deliberately coming off your feet is an offence. If you come into yeah. that contact area deliberately off your which feet, which is a judo, so role. you're not coming in low and taking off. Well, no, because you've contact, you've made contact now with a guy on his feet first of all. So but, you haven't come in off your feet. You've landed off your feet after an action of clearing somebody out. It's very different to you just coming in and diving straight. What happens? What That's about what the offence is? What about the premeditated action, which is you are creating, you're doing the judo role, which you know is premeditated to come off your feet to use your weight to lever that opponent off his feet. So it's premeditated. You can't do that that action, that technique, without coming off your feet. But then that's an after the, the off your feet is the action afterwards. So then you are not doing a thing illegal because you are on your feet. You've grabbed somebody and you're moving them from the contact area, which means now you've landed up off your feet. So it's a second reaction. Even though it's coming in off your feet, it's, it's coming in off your feet is is what the offence is. Even though you know, the, so, the actual technique is deliberately well, we can, coming we can off talk your feet. About, we, no, it's, but it's not. But, you know, if that would be your view of it. Other well, I've, just ne- I've never seen a judo roll where the guy doing the judo roll remains on his feet and the guy on the floor and the guy is, is, is taken off the floor because I mean, he has to judo use roll is not ele- A judo roll is not illegal, you see. You know, I, I, have you ever seen a penalty with a ruck collapsed? 
you haven't because the referees we don't interpret it like that. We interpret it. A guy is on his feet. I grasp around him legally, so I'm putting my arms around him and I'm then moving him in the direction away from that ball to clear it out. So my actions at the moment are legal. The fact that I've landed off my feet then is a consequence of a legal action and not an illegal action. So we'd have to interpret it as if you want a penalty off your feet, then you have to come clearly off your feet with no attempt, first of all, to clear somebody out of the ruck. You come in low, clear somebody out, or you bind onto somebody and you push them off. You are, it's a contact sport. It's pretty much unavoidable to go off your feet. It's your initial actions that we would interpret was it legal or not. The, what happens afterwards is a consequence of a legal action. You've gone off your feet. It's what happens next then we do it. So if you pull, if somebody comes off their feet onto the ball, but that they landed up there legally, they were cleared off, cleared out, and they came onto the ball, we would then, if they didn't move afterwards, we would penalise them for not rolling away. So the action of him actually landing on the ball is not illegal because he, he was put there or driven off and landed on the ball. So that action we would be playing on from. What we would deal with then is, well, yes, you went off your feet, but legally because you were driven off. You then were on the ball and then you made no attempt to roll away after you'd gone off your feet. So you're refereeing now the consequences of a legal action. It's illegal what you've done afterwards. You haven't done anything illegal by landing on the ball because you were cleared out and unavoidably off your feet onto the ball. So that's the way that the contact area is refereed and that is refereed with within the laws of the game because the initial contact is deemed to be is deemed to be legal so if you want it to be refereed in a different way they would have to look at the laws and decide if they were going to rewrite the laws in in any different way but the way that it is at the moment due to role as long as it's not around the neck or dangerous or deemed to be dangerous is not an illegal phase of, of the game and that's the way that it's being interpreted and that's the way it's being refereed and, and I would think that any legal dangerous action of grabbing somebody around the neck roll you know that there'd be zero tolerance and stuff like that because that's where the injuries tend to tend to happen really um, it'd be interesting to, to find out how many actual injuries do you see from people being cleared out with, with, with a judo roll for example I certainly haven't come across them in a game that I refereed really you know you see some of the injuries seem to happen when we have the illegal uh, illegal foul play of, of neck rolls and people charging in with with no arms and leading with a shoulder and those should be dealt with uh, with zero tolerance all perfectly straightforward thank you thank you <laughs> I, wish, I wish it was I wish it was <laughs> Nigel that's great hope to speak to you again very very soon Pleasure. All the best, lads. Thank you. Basically, I understand. Unusually, I can see both points of view here. Basically, I agree with what Nigel's saying. If you and people do agree with you, lots of people agree with you, believe that the manoeuvre itself is intrinsically dangerous, mm. they've got to rewrite the laws. Well, and I'm not blaming the referees because this is how they've been told to interpret the laws. But, you know, ask for examples. Well, I, I speak to Jean de Villiers that, that did his ACL, PCL, MCL, and else. No, I, 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 I mean, I, I can give you. I view. Can, Absolutely. And, and, and maybe it's it, a, a discussion for world rugby on those grounds to take away that particular ploy. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't know if I'm being facetious, but like, it's, 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 I just don't understand how um, that is not illegal under law. It's like. No, I do. Because oh, oh, isn't it not, though, that if you. Can you not see how that technique is deliberately coming off your feet? 
Uh, after you've made the contact. Yeah. Yeah. So it's then where the where does the law kick in? Well, it, it kicks in at the, very the initial first contact. Point. That's what Nigel's saying. So it comes after. And it's what about the deliberately collapsing a ruck again? How do you deliberately collapse a ruck if you're not? I mean, because your first point you, is when does the house blow over? You know, it's, it's uh, this is what I don't. And because actually under law four or five years ago, this was deemed illegal. We've had, well, we've it's had a, a, it's you know, a byproduct of the only way you can get some of the people out of the way. Actually. Yeah, yeah, it is. And uh, the ripple effect that actually, you know, we talk about the strength of the jackal over the ball. Well, if you don't go to floor, if you stay on your feet a little bit more, and we don't have these multi-phase, 20, 30-phase attacks because the attack can... It would all be sold if you could just tread on people like you used to. <laughs> get them out of the way. If you're on the wrong side, you get shooed to death and you don't do it again. There you go. I was, no, I wasn't being facetious. Anyway, that's all we have time for this week on Brimo's Full Contact with The Telegraph and Rebby Martin. Thank you to my co-host Ben Ryan and my producer Abby Patterson. Please do subscribe to the podcast and make sure you don't miss an episode and write a review whilst you're there too. For now, though, it's time to say goodbye. <laughs>